Hello and welcome. This is Friend Request Summer Series. Thank you so much for joining me. You know, in interviewing people, I found a lot of people that kind of run their own business. Uh, you know, you think of people like Leslie Bailey, who was on here, Lauren Carroll, Leah Carroll, uh, Elizabeth Clayton, so many people that I've had on here that run their own business. And I was wondering, like, what is that process? How do you get to that point? You know, you hear these stories of, oh, I was slumming and living on the streets and eating pizza out of the garbage can. And now I own New York. And you're like, wait, what? That's, that's crazy. What, how'd you do that? Um, and you don't really hear that in between, right? You hear A and Z, but you don't get the rest of the story. And that's where I wanted to dive in with people and find out, you know, like when did they realize that they had a marketable skill or talent? And what did that transition look like? You know, like what were your support systems between, uh, leaving your day job and, and starting this business and, you know, actually making a paycheck and then what kind of advice do they have? So this is great. I've learned so much and I'm, I'm very excited to pass this on to you guys. And these people are phenomenal. You're going to hear some familiar voices throughout the summer, uh, that you might recognize from some other episodes, but you're also going to hear some really new, unique, amazing voices and, and, and the things that they're doing. So I'm so excited to bring this to you. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Hi, I'm Aisha Shabazz. I am an anxiety specialist and confidence strategist. Not awkward at all. I try to keep everything <laughs> conversational. Um, and and I'm excited to talk to you for a number of reasons. So we have, we did an episode on anxiety. I think it was the first one we did. And it was the most downloaded episode to date <laughs> on the show. And people consistently go back to it and reference it. And I mean, I think that speaks volumes to our society as a whole, right? And especially Absolutely. this last year. And I'm sure you could write a novel on, on that subject. So I, I am excited to to dive into that. I wanted to just jump back a little bit and kind of get into a little of your history and where you came from as far as your, your school and, and what drove you into this field. Yeah. So I don't have one of those um, traditional hero journeys where, you know, I, I wanted to reconcile the things within me by serving others. Yeah. I fell into this work on a coincidence and I say coincidence in a flippant way. It's more or less like the universe led me to this path. So um, I went to college at the University of Pittsburgh. I studied neuroscience and minored in chemistry. So I had the intention of becoming a medical doctor. Okay. And it was my spring semester of my senior year that I was flabbergasted at this idea that people were choosing or having to choose between their medical care and their their needs of their family. So I, I tried to reconcile this, this moment in time of like, well, what do you mean that people are having to make these difficult choices? It, it seems like the obvious choice. If you have access to care, you use it. And it wasn't that simple at the time. And so I wanted to be a part of the solution on the preventative medicine side and not necessarily the reactive side and decided that I was not going to go to medical school. And that was very scary because I had planned yeah. so much because I'm super type A and super goal oriented. And it's like, okay, now what do I do? This wasn't in the plan and explored public health, which has a huge 
emphasis on preventative health and preventative medicine. And um, through that, I found social work. And so um, like many people, I had a very narrow view of what social work was. I thought social workers were the people that took people's kids away from them. And from a friend of mine at that point in my life, they said, actually, you know, social workers work in many capacities. I had the aspiration to work in a medical community and a medical institution that had never left me. And Um, that's where my social work journey started and through getting a master's in social work at Bryn Mawr School of Social Work, I was able to launch myself into a potential of being a therapist. Mm -hmm. So the flexibility of the social work degree really opened my eyes to not only what I would want to do in the short term, but what I could do down the line. And being an LCSW, we're able to do so many flexible things. And that was really appealing to me because I did want to have versatility in my career. So um, truly fell into it. Now, certainly I do have a lived experience where, you know, everything wasn't rosy and peachy, but that's inherently not why I chose this path. It was by utility of, well, what do I do now? Yeah. That had to be scary to get away from the um, I'm going to be a medical doctor because that's, uh, you know, no one wakes up and I'm like, yeah, I guess I'll start med school tomorrow. Like that's usually a pretty well thought out <laughs> plan. So yeah, that's, but I'm glad you found your path. Um, yes, it, I am very happy that I found my path. It's, it's funny. Uh, well, it's, sorry. I told you I'd interrupt. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when I, when I think about, and when you're talking and you, you're talking about preventative care and social work, um, the first thing that comes to mind is, uh, Dr. Nadine Burke Harris and, and the ACE study and all the stuff that, that she's been doing over the last decade or two in California. And I don't know if, how familiar you are with that, but that's, I wonder if that, uh, if that's something that ended up playing a role at all. And I know it's a specific question. I just am fascinated by the ACEs and like, and the things we can learn about people if we start early, you know, um, and I wonder if that played any sort of role as you started coming through school and like, when did you start learning about the ACEs and, and that impact? And like I said, I know that's a specific question, but yeah. Yeah. So the ACEs study was initially introduced to me when it, in my very limited knowledge about trauma, when I was studying neuroscience in college, um, then it wasn't illuminated as to the utility of seeing the research and applying it until I was in graduate school. And there was a five-year time gap between finishing college and going to graduate school. Um, For me personally, the ACEs study contributed to my life because of the transient nature at which I was reared. Both of my parents served in the United States military. And it was assumed that anybody that had a lot of shifts in their home, as far as like moving from place to place, would set them up in a negative way. Like almost, it wouldn't be a protective factor. And in my experience, it actually was a protective factor because of that versatility and adaptability. And that point didn't come into my awareness until one of my classmates actually pointed out. They said, oh, with you being a military kid, I'm surprised that you are so, you know, 
they literally said, I'm very surprised at how intellectual you are based on that. And I said, okay, is that like Thank a backhanded comment? <laughs> yeah. Right. I'm like, um, what are you saying? Can you clarify that statement? And they went into the research and said, you know, research shows that if children have very transient lifestyles and they're switching schools off and they're not able to keep up with their schoolwork. And so that allowed me to dive a little bit deeper into like, well, why was I not part of that statistic? And historically in, in my lived experience, and then also from my ancestors being a descendant of slaves, education was really important. And yet education was not accessible for, for many reasons. But my family of origin prioritized education. So it wasn't a matter of, oh, you're moving and then you'll just do the best you can. You know, my parents would take us to museums on the weekends. And every time we traveled, it was about like, what can you learn about the community that you're in? You know, my my dad being someone who was very much like focused Um, he would give me extra homework assignments, right? So I'm like in first grade trying to do like my little worksheet puzzle page. And he's like, all right, now we're going to look in the dictionary and you're going to have a spelling (laughs) test. I'm like, I just want to go outside and play. Like what is happening here? Yeah. So um, I say that all to say that like the ACEs study, I think is a beautiful resource for us to gain context into someone's life. And yet there are so many different nuances to the context that we have to look at as protective factors, not necessarily risk factors. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. I, and I appreciate you answering that. And I, I got to wonder, um, I'm, I promise I'll get on topic at one point, but You're <laughs> fine. I got to wonder, um, growing up with parents that are both in the military, um, did you, was it like, would you describe the household as patriotic at all? <laughs> oh, that's a great question. Just because, so, you know, there's a lot to wrestle with there. And then um, obviously, like in a lot of ways, nothing that's happening right now is new, but there's like a big spotlight on, on social injustice and, and, and everything that's going on. And I wonder what that lens looks like from being in that household to today. And, and mm-hmm. you know, that's that's got to be impactful in some way as you're on your point of view. Yeah, absolutely. So to answer that question, was it patriotic? I don't think it it is as how we define patriotism today in 2021. Um, I do remember that there were moments where I was excited and proud of the fact that my parents were in the military because that was our community. So I grew up living on military bases where all of the kids that I went to school with, their parents were also in the military. So there wasn't an opportunity for me to feel like the odd one out or like, Oh, your mom is showing up to school to pick you up in their uniform and combat boots. Like there wasn't, that wasn't abnormal because everybody's parent was doing that. Um, There was this semblance of protect and serve, but it was about the larger community. It was never about only protect and serve the people that are enlisted in the military because of that, um, because of that pride that came with serving in the United States, you're risking your life for the sake of other people that you'll never get a chance to meet. And the biggest part for me growing up was when my mother was deployed in the first Persian Gulf War, where she went away for an entire year. And it was me and my younger sister 
with my father, who had then at that point had left the military and was working in the federal government. So to have that patriotism, it was more or less like I was excited and proud of my mom because of what she represented, because she was someone that I looked up to. And at the time, I didn't realize this until the second Persian Gulf War, that I didn't realize at the time that my mom might not have come back. Like there was no conversation about, hey, Aisha, you know, hug your mom super tight because she might not come back. And that didn't come into focus until my other family members were um, deployed in the second Persian Gulf War, where I was having those conversations with my um, cousins who had children that were my age when my mother went away. And so that reconciliation of like what I went through as a child and not realizing how high the stakes were didn't really come fully into my awareness until after I was an adult. And I believe the reason why I was able to to cope with that and reconcile it is because of my training as a social worker. Um, I feel like if I was um, the, the typical person who doesn't have the the foundational understanding of mental health and social constructs and, you know, social determinants of health, that completely would have wrecked me and having that reconciliation at that moment. But um, again, if we're talking about protective factors, I feel like the path at which I went through was more of a protection. And now that we're in this common conversation about like, well, what does it mean when people call themselves a patriot? Like, what does it mean when you see like an American flag lapel pin, right? Or like a a flag (laughs) flying in someone's front yard. It completely meant something completely different when I was young than it does now. And it's, it's that precarious conversation. Um, But by no means do I have any like, shame or remorse around my parents who are in the military. It's yeah. something that I'm very so proud of to this day. It just needs more context because it is so different. Yeah. It's not mutually exclusive. Correct. <laughs> um, okay. Shifting back to your, your career. <laughs> so if you go, if you start to be like, I'm going to go into this field, everybody has an opinion on, on what those letters should be at the end of your name. Um, and I'm going LPC, which everyone's like, no, it's, you'll be there forever. I'm like, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> Did you hit that obstacle when you were like, okay, at the end, you know, I either have to do this requirement or I have to do these like thousand clinical hours or I have to like, does that question mm. make sense? I think so. There wasn't any hesitation of, will I pursue it to like the terminal level? It was very much in my program specifically, it was very much segmented into what do you want to do with this degree? Do you want to get licensed? Yes or no. If you want to get licensed, is it just your LSW or do you want to get your LCSW? If you don't want to get licensed, do you want to do community practice? Do you want to do research? Um, do you want to go clinical, that sort of thing. So it's problematic to put people in buckets and give labels because it keeps these rigid boundaries of like, well, what if I want to switch it up? What if I want to combine some things and make it my own? I am very much the, I want to make things my own. I want them to be adaptable and flexible to who I am. And so I opted to do both. I did a master's in social work, which at Bryn Mawr, they refer to it as a master's in social service. 
um, the clinical track, and then I did a master's in law and social policy. So I was able to get both of the advocacy and social justice strongly influence on like the legislation and legal side. And then also understanding, you know, human behavior and all of the things that come along with it so that I could be more versatile when I'm serving the populations that I serve. But it was always in an option to me that if I wanted to get my LCSW, that would open doors for me, not necessarily keep me bound to certain things that I could or could not do. And that's how I always looked at it as an opportunity, not as something that held me back. Yeah. Like this is going to take forever to do <laughs> Yeah, because the time is going to pass by anyway. So thank you. Yeah. That's no, I, I get in so many discussions with people about this exact thing and I'm like, but I, I know what I want to do. Why do you guys keep, <laughs> why does everyone have an opinion about this? Right. Just let um, me live. Yeah. Um, so how, how long after you, you get all your letters, so to speak, um, do you start, practicing therapy and are you immediately doing it as a private practice are you starting in uh the word escapes me for simple word uh within an office of other why can't i think of this word you know what i'm talking about like group Uh, practice yes thank you oh my god (laughs) yeah because that i feel like that's where you know a lot of people start out especially after school you you join a, a group practice with a bunch of other counselors and therapists and then go from there is that was Mm -hmm. that your path or did you start private practice right away so my path was after I finished graduate school there was a um there was a lot of time in between what I was doing and where I am now so I graduated in 2014 and I started my career as a medical social worker so I was working in a hospital setting specifically working as a discharge planner. So anybody that came into the hospital, it was, okay, the doctors and nurses want to get you out. We need to make sure that you go to the place that not only your insurance is covering, but also having your plan set up so that you're not re-entering the hospital within a certain time window. Because if the readmission rate was at a particular percentage, that would lower the rating of the particular hospital oh. that discharged you from their care. I had no idea that was a thing. <laughs> yeah. So I was the person that was coordinating care as far as getting people out. Then over time, I started working with people in a more specialized way. I had the opportunity to work for the Department of Veteran Affairs, and I was working in their specialty clinic. So I was coordinating care on an outpatient basis after someone had received like a very intense medical diagnosis, like life-changing medical diagnoses. And so once I found myself in this coordination care position, I really liked that. There was a system to it. I was able to interact with people, but it was also very short and limited. There were patients that I would help at the most intimate points of their life. I would meet them once and then never see them again. And There was something about that high rotation of meeting with tons of people that allowed me to really flourish. The caveat to that is all of my other colleagues that I would either share an office space with or I would interact with, they identified in me something that I didn't see. And they, many people told me, I think you would be really good at doing therapy. I was like, uh, I don't want to do therapy. I don't want to listen to people talk about the same thing week after week, right? Again, that like narrow-minded yeah. view of what things are happening. 
like in people's lives? And um, they said, no, you know, try it, give it a shot. So there's this membership organization here in Pennsylvania. It's called the Pennsylvania Society for Clinical Social Work. Mm -hmm. And it's a membership organization for social workers who um, are just interested in propelling the work of social workers. And I became a member there. And my colleague at the time said, you know, there's this committee that meets and they're private practice practitioners and they just meet and they talk about what it's like to be in private practice. Just go to those meetings and just learn something. And I'm like, okay, I'll sit and learn. This person hasn't steered me wrong yet. And I go to these meetings for years, like three to four years, I go to these meetings and I learned a lot. And from that, I moved from, I don't think I'd want to do this to, I don't know Like I moved from, I don't know if I want to do this to, I do want to do this, but I'm just not sure where and how. And so I wanted to challenge myself even more. And I ended up transitioning out of the VA to take a break to reconcile, like how I was feeling about my career at that time. Truth be told, I was very burnt out from my position, mostly because I felt that the systems that were put in place in that setting were were to exploit the passions of people that were super excited to be doing the work that they did. And so I made a very difficult decision and said, you know, I need to, I need to leave this and kind of reset everything. And in that reset, I said, well, let's try community mental health and see, because if you can do community mental health and still like doing therapy, (laughs) chances are you're really going to like therapy and other settings. And I did that. And after three months, I said, I love doing this. I could do this for the rest of my life. And so that was really the springboard to when is this going to happen? And so as I was collecting my clinical hours towards my LCSW, I continued to work in community mental health. And it was just a matter of time before I would get my LCSW and then open my private practice. Now that happened. I took my LCSW exam in January of 2020, and then wrote on a piece of paper five years prior, I will have my LCSW in five years. And we all know how glorious 2020 was and (laughs) that I would open up my private practice. So January, super geeked up about everything. And then March hits, pandemic happens. And um, I said, I'm still gonna open it. I'm still gonna do it. So now we're looking at almost a year since I've opened up my private practice, it'll be a year and a couple of months that I've been full-time in private practice. And I, I am so happy with my decision. Nothing I would change about it ever. Yeah. And and it's funny. I I usually ask everybody when, when did you realize that you had, uh, uh, like a a marketable skill or, or talent? And it sounds like other people realized that in you before you did and, and their realization kind of pushed you in that direction. Yes. And what a, that's got to be an amazing way to get a foundation going to those meetings for four years and getting all that insight. So then when you're ready to go, were you just like, I I have a lot of answers already to questions that probably a lot of people go into it without answers to. Yes, absolutely. I'm one of those people, mind you, I've learned very hard lessons the hard way. Um, But most of the time I feel very comfortable learning from other people. Tell me what, your experience was, I will be a captive audience and then decide if that information is really going to apply to me based on my temperament and my skill set, 
or if it's just like a nice, helpful FYI. And steeping myself in that experience for that long period of time allowed me to build up my confidence of like, oh, I don't think I would ever make that choice because of X, Y, Z, ABC, or, oh, I thought the exact same thing. I'm so glad I have clarity on this point. Um, The other thing is, is that I relied on other people outside of our industry to give me the ins and outs. So I don't know if you know this, but um, as a person who's in graduate school for a mental health trade, they don't teach you how to run a business. <laughs> I think, so. Well, I got my associates in, in business administration. So that, I'm thankful for that. Yeah. <laughs> you are ahead of the game. So um, for the rest of us that did yeah. not have that path, <laughs> um, we were not taught how to run a business. And so yeah. I knew that in order to have a private practice, I needed to know how to run a business. And so I learned and took on mentors that were business owners that, you know, studied business that, you know, had multiple businesses succeed and fail so that I could see it from a different perspective. Yeah. That's yeah. And that's, it's funny. Cause that's seems to be this, this inner woven thing throughout all of school is like, Oh, they don't teach you this and this usually is some sort of financial thing right like you're in high school they don't teach you how to like pay your bills and your rent and stuff when you when you move out and then you get to college and they're like oh you can do all this stuff but they don't teach you if you want to do it on your own you can do all this stuff under other people but if you want to do it on your own get this other degree (laughs) instead and Mm -hmm. and it's it's a funny thing to point out but it's it's so evident uh throughout all of education there's this like background that isn't really taught uh and it's not thought about until you get to that point where you have a bunch of questions and you realize you were never given those answers. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm glad you point that out in your transition. And I don't know if there was much of a transition or what that looked like. Um, was there a gap in, um, I guess not just income, but what like time patients, um, or clients, and what did that look like? What was your support system in, in transitioning from, you know, I have this like, working at the VA and doing stuff like that to doing your private practice? Were you able to bring on people right away? Like that growth period? Did you have a support system in the background for that? What does that look like? Yeah, great question. So in 2017 is when I made like that dramatic shift of leaving the yeah. VA, a position that at the time, in my at that time in my life, the most money that I had made and potentially the most money that I would ever make, um, benefits, all of that, it just looked on paper like great. Um, so after walking away from that, there was a period of, um, what's a mindful way of saying this? <laughs> <laughs> there was some, I was in a desert. Yeah. Um, so... And I had to ha- make a lot of lifestyle adjustments. But the the reason why I point that out is that you don't necessarily have to make difficult decisions and have a difficult outcome, right? It wasn't an easy path leaving something that I knew what I was getting, whether it was you know good, bad, or indifferent. I knew what I was getting um, financially. I was secure, and so. But I chose to leave it because my health and well being was more important to me. My peace was more important to me than a paycheck. And that value has stuck with me this entire time after having that awakening moment. So 
in those times, I worked as a cater waiter. I worked as a secretary at a nonprofit because I wanted to have less pressure on me to figure out what my next step was going to be. I became a yoga teacher. I still teach yoga. Um, and being in that space of tuning into myself and not necessarily having to pour out to everyone else was what I needed in order to get the clarity that I was desperately seeking. So again, 2017 to 2020, although it on paper, it's three years, it seemed like an eternity yeah. <laughs> um, because I was consistently working on like, well, what is next? How am I going to do the next thing? So once I got myself to a place where I'm like, okay, I know where I need to go and I need to pick up where I left off, which is pursuing getting my LCSW and all of that. I decided that I wanted to still take it easy, worked at a nonprofit during the day. And then in the evening is when I worked with the community mental health center. Um, so over that time, as I was maintaining my skill set, building new skills, I was still bringing in income. Yeah. Um, as far as the planning to building up my private practice, not only taking on mentors to help guide me through that process, learning from what they have done and, and didn't do, their successes and some of their failures, I also the three big things that I tell people to do that I did that brought me to have a successful private practice within my first year is to do a business plan because you're running a business to hire an attorney to make sure that your business is legally legit and to consult with a financial advisor so that you can make sure that your business is financially legit Yeah, because putting things on paper in a business plan, it looks all pretty and it's nice and there are words and numbers there but to talk to someone who looks at money every single day and can tell you, yes, these numbers make sense. And it checks out that you'll be able to replace your income or make more income in the process of you building this business is crucial. And the reason why I say that is because, again, we are not taught how to run a business. So we need to consult with people that are going to guide us in the right direction so that in a year, five years, 10 years, we're not lamenting our decision yeah. of, I thought I was going to open up a business and I just got a hot mess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I want to jump and shift the lens a little into anxiety specifically, but before I do, I'm curious about, I wrote this down I, and I want to not forget it. It's, it's no, I mean, it's no secret that the VA is like one of the most broken systems in in the government and given your background with your parents, but then also what you do for a job, like what was that like being like literally in the thick of it, man? Like you're helping people that I imagine at some point you're like, Oh, these are like the people, you know, my parents, my friend's parents growing up. And, but then at the same time, you're, you're seeing the, the ugly side of the government and how, how terribly that stuff is run. Like how, what, how are you wrestling that at that time? Is that why you left there? Um, I would say that contributed to yeah. why I left. Um, first and foremost, I'm someone who values the people that are coming for service with yeah. any business entity. Right. Yeah. And it's not a matter of like the customer is always right. It's you have to remember what keeps your doors open If people do not need your service, then they will not come to your business. 
And the fact that the veteran affairs is anchored on the fact that enlisted people in the military, when they are honorably discharged from the military, that they then become veterans, it is a service that we're offering them. And so there were many things that I witnessed that were not in service of the veterans. And that bothered me. Um, There were many things, and I mean, you could just Google any headline. Oh, yeah, no. I'm I'm well aware, yeah. (laughs) Upsetting, very upsetting to me. Um, So that was one contribution to why I knew that that was not a place that I could continue to work. Um, The second, and I would say the the biggest wake-up call was the fact that even though I was trying to work on behalf of veterans and serve them well, it wasn't it wasn't appreciated by the people that were in leadership at the time that I was working there. So I'm literally breaking my back trying to serve as many people as I can. And yet it was not appreciated. It was like, Oh, well, can you do more when I would notice an, an ad and an inadequate treatment and I would speak up or report it or whatever. It was like, Oh, well, we just need you to stay quiet. You're on our side, not on their side. And so I said, no, I serve the veterans. I'm not about the bureaucratic life. And I, my, my father would often reference me as like a rebel without a cause, which I love that movie so much. Um, (laughs) But I, I was, I was a rebel with the cause. Like you cannot tell me that I'm going to use my skill set and my know-how to help people and then not use the same skill set to advocate for them, to not use the same skill set to advocate for myself. And so because there were a lot of disparities between what they were expecting me to do and what they just wanted me to sit down and shut up and do, that was intolerable for me. And in trying to advocate, it took a toll on my health and well-being. And I had to say to myself, if I am talking with people every day in the most difficult days of their life and saying, take care of yourself, reach out for help, and I'm not doing that for myself, then I am being a hypocrite. And so- Every time that I would meet with a patient, that was the moment that I'm like, okay, I have to make sure that I'm taking care of myself because I just told this person they need to do the same. And so it was the, the, the honor of being able to serve them in those moments that kept me going to say, when are you going to do the same for yourself? When are you going to respect yourself and live the life of dignity that you're hoping to instill in these veterans? So was it hard? to, you know, serve veterans and then, you know, visit my parents. Yeah, it was very difficult, um, especially because the disparity of which veterans qualify for veteran benefits and which ones don't. Yeah. Um, I, one of my, uh, my thesis for my master's in law and social policy talked about how the military justice system really sets up enlisted people to, um, sacrifice their civil liberties once they enlist into the military because of the military justice system. And I was able to see that firsthand and working at the VA and, and seeing people like, oh, but I'm a veteran. It's like, but your discharge wasn't in the status that it needs to be in order to get this benefit or, you know, oh, well, I served in Vietnam. Well, you know, yeah, you did, but because you served in this branch at this particular time, that doesn't line up. So you can't be service connected at this percentage, meaning you can't get this service. So there was a lot of 
It's like worse than health insurance. Yeah. Yeah. It was terrible. (laughs) So, um, I did have a lot of great colleagues there and I still do. I still keep in touch with many of my colleagues that are there. Um, it was the most meaningful experience that I have had to date in my career. And I say that because every single veteran that I came in contact with was the most beautiful human being I could ever come in contact with. So that is what made it special is the veterans that I was able to take care of and, and help along the way. And the people that were my colleagues that got it, but didn't have an opportunity to break free from it at the time. And in addition to that, like, I think a lot of times we think that the government is the only entity that's like that, but a lot of nonprofits are run like that too. And so even though my experience at the VA was the way that it was, I still saw the same things at nonprofits that I worked at afterwards. And so that gave me even more encouragement to say, when you get a chance to do things on your own, you can make certain that you are not exploiting yourself the way that these agencies did. And you can make certain that you are not going to enact these um, systems of oppression while you are serving other people. So, you know, we could say that, you know, bureaucracies are the big bad wolf, but I believe that all institutions, especially ones that employ people and are asking us to deliver a social service um, are, are also guilty of the same. Yeah. But you kind of went out and you like in the, you know, what's the phrase be the change you want to see. And you kind of did your own thing and now you're trying to do that. Um, uh, can you tell me, I mean, in your own definition, what is an anxiety specialist and confidence strategist? Yes. So I consider myself an anxiety specialist because I am someone who primarily sees people that are struggling with managing their anxiety in a tolerable way. There's this misconception that anxiety, that everybody doesn't have it. And that's not the case. It is a biological phenomenon that everybody experiences. It is fight or flight. It is freezer fawn. It can be all four of those things all at once or anything in between. And so oftentimes what is said in our day to day is that, oh, anxiety is easy. Like it's, it's, it's one of those easy ones and it's not easy for someone who experiences it in an intense way and they are debilitated by it. So when I say I specialize in anxiety, like that is the thing that if you come to me and you describe how you're feeling, I'll be able to pinpoint for you. Oh, that sounds like anxiety. And this is why, and give you actual tangible tools on how to manage it in a tolerable way. A lot of people are managing it and it's still not tolerable. Um, cause we're not going to eliminate your anxiety because if we did, then you wouldn't have your reflexes about you. You wouldn't be able to say, Oh, I heard a noise. I wonder what that is. Um, as far as confidence strategists, again, it's a similar, it's a similar pattern of when I looked at all of the clients that I enjoyed working with, I noticed that there, there was a correlation between anxiety and confidence where I feel anxious and then I I feel insecure that I'm not going to be able to do this thing that I desire to do. And so when you're strategizing with someone on how they can be more confident, we're looking at it from their eyes. It doesn't mean I want to be able to walk into a meeting and like tell my boss to go, you know, go somewhere. It is a matter of 
you know, I want to feel comfortable in my own skin. I want to not spend three hours looking through my closet to decide what I'm going to wear for the day. I want to make sure that when I leave the house, I know for a fact that I locked the door and I turned off the oven, right? It's those things that for me, anxiety and confidence intersect so strongly and time and time again, when I'm having consults with people or when I'm working with my clients, it is like clockwork that they both show up at the same time. Yeah. I relate so much to stuff that you just said. And it is funny because people don't seem to always grasp the severity um, that that it can have. And especially in a society right now where, I mean, you pick up your phone and you there's constantly something that it can be triggering or add to it. And you have to find yourself sitting in this world where like you're worried about every waking moment that, that that's happening. Um, Mm -hmm. it's, and it's like I said at the top of the episode, like it's no surprise to me that anything about anxiety on my podcast is the highest downloaded episode. Like people are looking for these resources and that's like where someone like you comes in, which is great. Um, you, I saw something on your website that I have never seen before, though, that, that I was like, wait, what? This is a thing where you are running and correct me when I am wrong, because I'm sure I will be at one point. <laughs> but uh, you are running a workshop for people, uh, the loved ones of or how, how was that phrase? See, I'm already wrong. The but the uh, people that have anxiety, like a support group for the loved ones, almost like an Al-Anon for for <laughs> family members, friends. Can you tell me about that? Because that's I've never seen anything like that before. And it's such a unique perspective to address that. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. So um, the the name of it that I've coined is Anxiety 101. So it, it is the attempt. The intention is to teach people who are friends and family members of someone who is anxious in an intense way about anxiety one of the biggest things that I hear from people is I wish they understood what I was going through. They do not understand how much I struggle because anxiety is one of those things. Unless you are riddled with anxiety attacks, panic attacks, um, dissociations, no one can witness what you're going through. Like no one can look inside your mind and see that your mind is racing. Right. No one knows of the like, terror nightmares that you're having that are cycled around like did i set my alarm clock right to get up on time no one sees those things and so the reason why i created this group is so that people can understand how difficult it is to manage anxiety and that they're learning the science behind it so they understand that it is not oh just relax oh why don't you just go do some yoga yeah. If you could just breathe in this moment, I think you would feel so much better. Like if it was that easy, I would not have a job. <laughs> so I want to bring more awareness to people about not only anxiety, but how to manage it. The other burden that comes along with anxiety is the amount of energy it takes out of the people in that anxious person's life. So the idea of like, can you make sure the alarm is on? I I turned it on, but just, can you just make sure like that in and of itself, like wanes on the support system. Get out of my head, Aisha. (laughs) (laughs) So the, the intention is to increase that compassion without enabling the person's anxious tendencies and allowing them to know that like, 
it is very difficult to manage a mental health diagnosis when you don't have the understanding from the people in your life. So if one person understands a little bit more what you're going through, it takes the burden off of you to have to feel on edge because anxiety, it's very complex, but oftentimes what happens is that you feel like this on edge, like you can't relax. There's always something around the corner of like, and then if someone asks you a question, it's like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, leave me alone. Right. And it's hard to explain, like, why are you on edge? It seems like you had a great day today. And so to explain that to someone takes time and energy that you just don't have because your mind is in a different place. One key thing that I explain to people is anxiety lives in the future. It's so future focused. It's living in the what if. In the present moment, we're here, we're being. And in the past, you could refer to it as like depression, depressions in the past. So my intention is to bring people from the future and have them feel at ease being in the present. You can visit the future. You can visit the what ifs, maybe some future goal setting. You can visit the past and say, I want to reflect. But the intention really is to stay in the present moment. And the work that comes along with working with anxiety in a therapeutic setting is to train the tolerance level of being at ease and coming from the present to the future, to the present, to the past, to the present. And we're constantly toggling between that. It takes a lot of energy to do that. And as you can tell by the way that I talk, (laughs) I'm very energetic. Um, And that's what it takes. And a lot of times that energy wanes on people and it's like, I'm exhausted by your anxiety. Well, just imagine how I feel because my mind is always going. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's I I love that way that you put that with the, the past and the present and the future. That's that's makes it. <laughs> I just I experience a lot of this firsthand, and the way you're describing it is, is so spot on, and I and I absolutely love the analogy. Um, thank yeah, thank you. Uh, well, I noticed you you do virtual visits for New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Rhode Island. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And what do you offer is the anxiety groups, anxiety 101, is that what you kind of offer outside of those specific locations where, you know, licensing and stuff comes into it? Um, or is there other stuff that you offer to people that can go to your website and check that out? Yes. So in addition to doing individual therapy for folks and support groups, I also offer case consultation for therapists or aspiring therapists that are interested in learning how to support their clients who are struggling to manage their anxiety in a tolerable way. So folks who are thinking like, oh, I'm thinking of a couple of people that I'm just not really sure what to do with them, or they seem really motivated, but every time I give them quote unquote homework, they don't do it. Why is that? I am someone that is very passionate about helping people figure things out in a way that works for them. So I don't give people cookie cutter things like this is the the one thing that I recommend that everybody does. So when I meet with people in case consultation, I really am saying like, well, tell me about what you have done so far. Tell me about this client, how long you've been working with them. How do you receive their anxiety? And then say, is this something that you would be able to do? Do you feel almost like using motivational interviewing, right? Like how likely are you to make this happen? How confident do you feel in making this happen? And if they don't feel confident in doing it, it's not going to come off to the client as authentic. It's going to come off as rote and it's going to come off as like, 
you read this in a book this morning and I don't think you believe it. So I work with people to authentically show up in their therapy sessions and to recognize when it's appropriate to refer out. I think a lot of clinicians have a lot of shame and saying like, oh, I can't meet their needs. I'm going to make it work. And you're, you're serving someone better if you refer them out to someone because you're prolonging suffering if you don't do that. And I'm not in the business of prolonging suffering. We are also obligated to the Hippocratic Oath, like yeah. do no harm. So I feel like the more that we focus on what can you do right now in this moment and what's better for the client now and in the future, it's very easy to say, I can help this person with just a little bit more support or I need to refer them out because they're beyond my scope of practice. That's awesome. That's a really cool addition to, to the services you offer. Um, well, yeah, that's, I think, well, I, I, so <laughs> it's funny because you just mentioned the cookie cutter advice, um, but I, I'll try to phrase this in a way that covers both bases here too, but what advice would you give to, not necessarily, I was going to say people struggling with anxiety, but I'm not, I'm not going to go there because it is individualized, <laughs> but um, what advice would you give to people, generally speaking, that are thinking of taking what they have to offer, the value that they, they found and putting it into the terms of a business. And I know you spoke to that earlier uh, as far as like getting, you know, getting the accountant, getting the lawyer, getting the, the business plan. Um, those scarier first steps, what, what advice would you give being now like a little over a year into it based on the lessons you've learned and everything? I would say, especially if you're leaving an institution that was not good for you as far as like toxic and leaned on like exploitation to get you to do your work, to help you to serve people, almost guilt tripping you in. It's like you have to overserve in order to serve. I would encourage people to look at decolonizing their systems. So looking at what systems of oppression are present in the way in which I was oriented to my work and how can I undo those things so that I don't recreate them when I have my own thing going on. That is a very big task to take on because decolonizing an institution looks very, very different depending on the population you're serving and what your skill sets are. So I always recommend to people that if you're not sure about something, ask a question. If you don't think you know how to do something good enough, ask a question. I would rather you seek to understand than to speak from a place that you have no clue where that information came from. And in the event that people are like, what's decolonizing mental health? I'm not sure what that means. I did a training with the um, inclusive therapist and I definitely think that people should check it out mostly because the inclusive therapist prides themselves on DEI, so diversity, equity, and inclusion, but then they also are looking at decolonizing mental health specifically. So if anything, recognize what your values are. Why do you work with the people that you work with? There are some people that will say, well, I work because I need to pay my bills, but that's not a value. That's a to-do list item. What is your value? Are you doing this? for a reason that gets you out of bed in the morning? What are the things that you do that if you weren't getting paid, you would still do? And then underneath that is the values that you have. Anything that you do 
seek the value in that. And if you have that as your foundation, you can't go wrong. Excellent. That's, that's great advice. And where can people find you? Yes. So as far as my therapy practice goes, my website is in realtimewellness.com and I have an Instagram page and Facebook and LinkedIn page for that. And then as far as my consulting work, it is my full name, AishaRShabazz.com. And again, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn for that. And you could always just reach out to me in the DMs and I'll respond and let you know how we can work together. Yeah, I love the the consultation and supervision for therapists. That's such a unique uh, approach at helping people out. I love that. Well, thank you so much for sitting down with me and dealing with my tangents uh, of questions that I went off on. I'm so used to doing my normal interviews where, you know, start at the start at birth and go go forward. So you mentioned a couple of things. I was like, wait, no, I have to ask you about this. <laughs> so, so thank you for entertaining that. And, and I appreciate you taking the time today. And one thing that I do have planned for the end of the summer is um, a group that talks about confident communication and that's geared towards clients, yeah. not friends and family of clients. Um, and that's going to be the same setup for weeks we're working through things, building tangible skills that you can use out in the real world okay. that day if you wanted to. And then at the end of the summer, I'm launching an online program for new therapists to become value-based practitioners and looking at how they can streamline, organize, and save time as they are trying to acquire clients through their 15 minute consultation. So that is going to launch at the end of the summer, August, 2021. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Well, that'll be out before then. So I'll make sure to make people go to your website and and check that stuff out. And maybe I'll be working with you on a professional level in the future too. So that's, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, Thank you again so much for taking the time and, and enjoy the rest of your day. Hopefully Thank you, it's Justin. A little Thank warmer so in Pennsylvania than it is here in Michigan. So <laughs> it is <laughs> historically so. It is <laughs> awesome. Enjoy. Thank you again, and I will talk to you later. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye. Bye bye.